Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yin Shen. Today on our podcast, we have Jia Lin Yang speaking about her new book, One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, The Epic Struggle Over American Immigration, 1924 to 1965, published in 2020 by W.W. Norton. Jia Lin Yang is Deputy National Editor of the New York Times. Before the Times, she worked at the Washington Post, where she was Deputy National Security Editor since 2015. Prior to that, her reporting on the intersection of business and policy was selected for the Columbia Journalism Review's Best Business Writing of 2014 anthology. She's a native of Alexandria, Virginia, but spent summers growing up with her family in Los Angeles, which taught her that the best food in America can be found in strip malls. She received her BA in philosophy from Yale University. In One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, Jia Lin tracks the legislative personalities and battles that took place to overturn the 1924 Immigration Act or the Johnson-Reed Act and to implement immigration reform in the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, also known as the Hart-Celler Act. Our conversation covers this history as well as her thoughts on the contemporary resonances of the immigration debate and what historians and scholars can do to make their scholarship more broadly available to the reading public. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ian Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Jia Lin Yang about her book, One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, The Epic Struggle Over American Immigration, 1924 to 1965, which will be published by W.W. Norton in May of 2020. Jia Lin is Deputy National Editor of the New York Times. Jia Lin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we've, we just talked about this, and I have to say I'm already tripping over it because we were just talking about the pronunciation of your name uh, and the yeah. fact that I uh, go automatically for the Chinese pronunciation, even though uh, that's not how it is pronounced. Um, which is correct, technically, but yes, it's a long story. <laughs> but let's start there as, as the, the long stories go. Um, if you could uh, begin by telling us a little bit about yourself um, and, and your background um, as a journalist. Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in Northern Virginia outside D.C. Um, my parents are uh, sort of a, took a long, circuitous way to Virginia in the 70s uh, in the U.S., my dad was born in Shanghai um, in 1949, just just uh, before the Communist Party took over, and his family fled to Taiwan. My mom was born in Taiwan in 1950, right around the same time, and they both sort of separately made their way to the U.S. Um, in the 60s and 70s for education. And then I was born and raised in Virginia. I, you know, spent my whole childhood um, in Virginia, growing up around a ton of immigrant families as well, um, and got into journalism. 
simply even from high school I started and just was hooked from a very young age and I've been at the Times now for about two and a half years and I help oversee coverage of the country um, not including I'm always careful to say Donald Trump so I don't really deal with politics in Washington but really anything else happening in the country um, stories about immigration stories about race stories about you know mass shootings, or as we're doing now, the coronavirus, that's all sort of under the purview of the people I work with every day. And um, I just, you know, I love history as well, which is how I ended up uh, stumbling into this world and writing this book. So that makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, the the kind of broad portfolio of topics that you you cover. How did you decide to focus on immigration in particular as the kind of historical topic that you wanted to tackle in One Mighty and Irresistible Tide? It started with a very personal question. I was actually in Austin, Texas for a very good friend's wedding and happened to want to go to the LBJ library. I, I love reading history books about the Johnson administration um, and the civil rights movement. I, I can't entirely explain why, but for me, it is just such a dramatic um, and important part of our country's history and one that I really felt like I had been, you know, that really taught properly, frankly, in high school. I, I felt like when I started to read history on my own as an adult after college, um, the 60s and the civil rights movement and the Johnson administration in particular felt like I just felt like I hadn't been taught any of it before. I, I was taught the, you know, the I Have a Dream speech from MLK, but but everything about this incredible civil rights movement, I just felt like it was all very new to me. And so I wanted to go to this museum and uh, my husband and I went, and there's this room there that is all about LBJ's Great Society accomplishments, and pretty much everything in there was familiar to me. Some some parts were kind of fun to see, like the way that LBJ helped finance, you know, uh, public public television. And then in one corner of the room, there's just this little display about the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, and. I think there's like a photo maybe of him signing it. And then there's this quick description in the museum that says, you know, this law helps explain, I'm paraphrasing, but something like this law helps explain why there's so many Asian Americans in the United States. And I thought, that's funny. I've read like volumes now about the civil rights movement, about the Voting Rights Act, about the Civil Rights Act, about everything LBJ does in that extraordinary period of productivity, right? From like 64 to 65 but I don't think I really know this law. Again, maybe it was a gap in my education in high school. Maybe I've been taught it and I'd forgotten, but it seemed new to me. And in particular, the connection potentially to my own family. So when I flew back home from Austin, back to DC, where I was living at the time and I worked for the Washington Post, I just began digging into the law just to answer this question. Is it connected to my family at all? Right. I have my parents, you know, my parents are here. Uh, my mom's siblings live in California. I have cousins. My dad's parents, you know, who who died many years ago, but they ended up immigrating here too. So I began to ask, like, is there a reason that this law helps explain why my family is here? And for me, what was so intriguing was that it felt like the story of our immigration was very familiar to me in that it was a story of we left Shanghai in 1949, 1950. We get to Taiwan. Then we, when we get here for education, now we're here. It was this very, like, very straightforward story, very dramatic story. But like, that was the story. I never thought of the flip side, which is, so why were we allowed to come here at all? 
Like it wasn't just to sort of, it, the, in that original story, we just sort of took for granted that we would be able to be here legally. And so that's why I started digging into it. And um, I basically just could not stop looking into it because of that personal connection. And it sounds like based on the prologue, your family, um, as I understand it, took advantage of both of the major clauses um, of the 1965 Act, right? That, that um, as I understand it, your, your mom, who's, a, I think, a microbiologist, um, came in on, on the clause that admitted immigrants on the basis of their special skills. But your father, I believe, came in on the family reunification clause. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So his parents were here. Then he, you know, he was already here for college and grad school. And then to stay, he relied on their their permit residency visas to basically let him stay longer. And then, you know, I didn't fully dig into it, but my my mom's siblings too had different, you know, ways in which their lives were shaped by this law and the preferences. And it explains why, you know, my family and so many others, it, it explains why there's sort of a web of connections. An entire extended family can end up in the U.S., not just sort of, you know, a little a little corner of the family, just one piece after another joins, um, you know, what, what the Trump, you know, the Trump people call chain migration very much. Um, that's why my family is here. Right, right. I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm amazed by the... Um, the sort of resonance to, to my own family history, which, um, you know, I, I had a, an uncle um, who came to the States uh, and studied to be a naval architect. Um, and through, again, chain migration, um, sponsored his younger siblings. And later on in the 90s, my, my mother, um, my brother and myself uh, to come to the US. And so, you know, in a way, I think many of us uh, can, can probably trace our family histories back to this particular piece of legislation that, as you said, is sometimes not as well understood as, you know, it really ought to be, um, even though there's, you know, there's been a little bit more work, um, you know, in the last few years because of the sort of 50th anniversary um, of the Heart Seller Act. Uh, but, you know, it, it's still kind of, especially the process that you describe in the book, which is really about how you know, the 1924 Act, which is much more restrictive and, you know, carries national origins quotas, um, is eventually overturned, right? That 40-year battle um, uh, is not as well understood um, as as many of us as historians uh, would like it to be. Um, yeah, and I think what, what struck me, too, is that, you know, it was my family story. And then I began to think, I sort of was looking around in my mind of everyone I grew up with, too, in Northern Virginia, which is a part of the country that has wildly changed demographically in the last 20 years and has gotten significantly less white. Many more immigrants from all over the world are here. And I began to realize that this law not only explained my family's presence, but all these people around me and this whole idea that there's going to be, you know, the white, white Americans are losing their majority status. And if you want to understand why that happened, you just can't, can't do that without knowing this law. And it just felt to me what made me want to write the book and go beyond just sort of this personal family history exploration was the sense that, that, that this history should be more widely known somehow. And if I was interested enough to sort of keep researching it for myself, why not write a book about it? Too? Right. Right. What, what um, is funny too, is that uh, the LDJ library is actually um, the last trip that I took before the quarantine began. Um, so I have some sense of, of the room you're talking about. And, you know, when you walk up yeah. that major stairway and you sort of see the archival boxes, um, in that sort yeah. of 
grandly illuminated hall. Um, you know, it's 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 really a an amazing presidential library. But I wanted to to maybe use that as a jumping off point to talk about your sources for the book, right? As a journalist, obviously, you know, your day to day is is in reporting and editing, um, and. Uh, and so this is this is doing archival research maybe is is you know less of a um, common occurrence in in your professional life. Um, but what are some of the historical secondary sources and historical works that you found most helpful as you were trying to tell the story of this uh, legislation? And and what parts inspired you to go into the archives? Um, and what was that experience like for you as a journalist? Yeah, when I was putting together the the book proposal itself, I mean, I I was writing this book while doing full time jobs the whole time. I never took book leave, so I basically, when I was writing the book proposal, I had to really understand for myself the research involved that it was actually doable. That I wasn't signing myself up for a book where all the great materials were in, let's say, like you know, Seattle or San Francisco, a place that was very far from Washington D.C. where I lived at the time, and. I, I learned very quickly that, you know, the sources I would need were largely the Library of Congress. They were, some of them were in New York and then some of them were in presidential libraries. And essentially what, what drove me, what sort of the anchors that I used to do my research was I figured out that there were a handful of people who were obviously very central figures in all of this. And so I kind of organized my research around those individuals because I wanted to understand who they were. And there were people who were, you know, very famous, obviously, like JFK, LBJ, um, and Harry Truman. But even then, this side of their record, this this part of what they're involved in immigration, I thought was very not well understood. So even though they're famous, I was eager to go to the presidential libraries to, to carve out every box I could find on immigration, right? Not just when they were presidents, but for someone like JFK in particular, when he was a congressman, when he was a senator, all of that. And then there was this other sort of second pool of people I knew that I, that I was interested in who I never heard of and who were very hard to find information about. And those people for sure, I was gonna, I knew I was going to dig into archives of. So number one of the list was Manny Seller, this congressman from Brooklyn, who I'm kind of stunned there hasn't been a full-fledged biography of this person. He, you know, he's one of the longest serving uh, members of Congress. He was one of the longest serving members of Congress ever. Um, he's there from the early 20s through the 70s. Um, he sees everything. And I think if you're interested in LBJ's legacy um, and the Great Society, you you have to deal with Manny Seller because he's chair of the House Judiciary Committee and every big piece of legislation is going through him. And he's 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 really a partner to LBJ in Congress to getting all that all that just sort of incredible legislation passed one after the other. And so he is someone where I thought, you know, there's no book on this person. There is, I mean, I literally started, um, I went through as just like an early pass. I did two things. One was I figured out his papers were at the Library of Congress and at the Brooklyn Public Library in New York. And I started going to the Library of Congress on my weekends and just going through his papers just to establish anything because he has a memoir that he wrote that's unfortunately, fairly poorly written and not that well done. And it's from like, I think the 50s. It's not even after he helps the immigration law get passed or any of the Great Society stuff. It's like earlier in his career. It's not that helpful. And so I felt like I was really, for him especially, I knew that he would be a central figure in the book because he's there from beginning to end of this fight. I would have to make the book work. 
I would have to really dive into his papers. And then I was going to say the second thing I did too was I looked through the archives of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle and literally just entered in his name and seller, which is kind of an unusual last name to figure out his family history, his parents, every time they appeared in clippings from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, just anything to piece together who he was, which made actually the beginning of the book the hardest for me to write because I felt like I was really starting from almost scratch about a very important person in the book. I really loved um, the way that you follow him throughout the book because there is something really poetic, triumphant, and beautiful. You know, the moment that LBJ signs that act and he's there having watched yeah. this happen for 40 years, you know, going up against people like Pat McCarran and Joe McCarthy um, and, and having to fight those battles decade after decade. And I just, I have to imagine watching the president sign that piece of legislation. I can't imagine what he must have felt like, uh, but it must have been amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, you know, I'm not a historian, obviously. I have to say, I don't, I can't think of anything quite like this, right? Like, I, I don't know that I've, read the story ever of someone who just is in Congress. Also, he never, he never goes to the Senate, right? Everyone goes to the House of Representatives and immediately wants to ascend to higher office. He just stays in the House his whole career. And I just the idea that you would begin at the very beginning of your career, you see something happen that you feel is deeply unjust, and you literally spend 40 years trying to undo it. And then finally, you get there. I just and and just you know, I it was it was hard to kind of try to recreate that feeling. But once I knew that that was true of his life, I just thought I've got to write a book where he is you know a really important part of it. That focus on individuals comes through really clearly, and and I think is a, a wonderful jumping off point for talking about sort of your decision to to focus on sort of these congressional and presidential figures, um, you know, which is, is uh, some historians would kind of look at and, and say that's uh, a more traditional interpretation of kind of political history or, or legislative history. Um, what was your thinking process, your thought process behind um, focusing on these key sort of national leaders and national figures when it came to writing this history? Yeah, I thought, you know, as I say a little bit earlier, I, I thought that what was interesting was that these are people who seemed very familiar to me but they actually, their role in immigration was not familiar to me. And not only was it not familiar, but they played pivotal roles in it, right? So like the idea that LBJ, I think in his own memoir, he does not even mention uh, the Heart Seller Act, um, the way that it doesn't come up in books about him. And I, I mean, I read every biography of him. It, it mentions like a line. Um, someone like JFK even, right, who writes A Nation of Immigrants. I found it very hard to find information about his own history with immigration it struck me that, yes, these are very familiar people, and it is more kind of a top-down look at it, but it seemed clear that there was no way that this legislation would have happened if not for these major figures getting involved in these sort of surprising ways that I, I don't think people are familiar with at all. Even if you've read like 10 JFK books, you, you don't know this part of his life, actually, I, I would argue. I mean, I've read a lot of them, and for all the ink that's been spilt on the Kennedy family, not a lot has been done on, I think, their very very, very significant role in changing immigration, uh, our immigration system. And so I did, I did think about that, right? Like a part of me, because I, I, again, not a historian, but I'm familiar with that kind of that, that debate and that thinking around, you know, ground up kind of his, you know, history work versus more top down. But I just loved the drama of, of these famous people having this 
part of their portfolio lesser known. And I felt like if I was going to draw people into reading this book, I mean, the history books that I love to read in a way have both people I've heard of being revealed to me in new ways and people I've never heard of. And just as a writer, I love, I love the narrative possibilities of this sort of cast of people essentially. And I thought if I could use these, you know, I want to, I want people to read this book, right. And I want them to get interested in part of a way to get people interested is to say, Oh, you know, about JFK, you just don't know about this side of him. And you know about LBJ, but you don't actually know about this really important, one of, one of the most important things he did in 1965 is not, you know, you've heard the other things, you haven't heard of this one. And then I also would say that I found, um, I loved that a lot of the people that I wrote about themselves, you know, are descended from immigrants. And so that story of their families and how they thought of themselves as Americans versus Irish American versus Jewish American, I thought there was a way actually to capture that universal American experience, right? Of like, of, of your family coming here and then you over time sort of adopting being an American. I, I just love that everyone involved practically had their own story of immigration and some kind of assimilation of that. That was actually part of how they got involved in the, in the whole, um, the whole, you know, subject to begin with. Well, on that, on that note, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that I kept thinking about as I, uh, sort of compared the biographies uh, of these different leaders is how these political positions that that they take, either pro or against immigration, are shaped over time, right? And as you said, you know, some of these kind of make a lot of sense. Their families themselves uh, are, are immigrants, but there are folks who show up. For example, you know, in early in the book, um, you write about Labor Secretary James Davis, who himself is a Welsh immigrant um, who had served in three consecutive presidential cabinet but had developed into a, a pretty prominent op- opponent of, of immigration, right? And, and you compare the biographies of people like LBJ and McCarran, who come from kind of southern, southwestern, you know, western, um, hard scrabble towns and backgrounds. One person turns into, you know, LBJ turns into kind of this outward, forward, progressive-looking uh, leader, McCarran sort of doubles down, whether it's because of his Catholicism or something else, you know, into kind of this hard opponent again, hardened opponent of, of immigration. So I wonder, as you as you dug through the papers of these folks, whether or not you came to some sense of how these kinds of political positions um, ossify over time, right? How do, how do people who are immigrants themselves become opponents of immigration? Or if we think about the sort of current administration, descendants, right, of, of immigrants um, uh, 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 become uh, opponents of, of immigration. How do, how do people become sort of open-minded, outward, you know, um, outward-looking, egalitarian uh, uh, sort of political leaders versus kind of paranoid um, and and exclusive nativist political leaders. Yeah, I, I thought about this in the modern setting, too, because, I mean, I think you might be even alluding to, like, Stephen Miller, right, someone whose family, um, I think, I believe, like, literally survived the Holocaust and were, and were admitted to the U.S. as Jewish refugees or, or something like right. that, right? And um, I think also about, you know, in the Chinese-American community, there are, you know, not too far from, I'm, I'm in Virginia right now, but in Maryland, there's definitely um, something of a group of Chinese Americans who are quite um, quite anti-immigrant. And I think part of what's happening there, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. There's something obviously very psychologically complex happening there. But first of all, I would say, I do think that 
it's very easy to take for granted the idea that immigrants are pro-immigrant. I mean, I think you see this in polling right now. I mean, I think white Democrats in particular sort of assume that all immigrants are pro-immigrant, right? They sort of lump everybody into one giant pot of like, oh, you're an immigrant. You must love immigrants. I love immigrants. We all love immigrants. <laughs> and they don't really, I, I think I think people sometimes gloss over the complexities of it. And I do think, I mean, my one guess is that I think the people who, there are, there are immigrants who truly, I think in a way, like the harder you love this country, in a way, you you might be more prone to being anti-immigrant. And I guess what I mean is that you get you go so all in on becoming American and what assimilation might look like, and to show that you're American, right? You're saying I basically renounce everything that I used to be. I am all in on being American. No one would ever accuse me of not being American. And you get so deep into that that you become something of a gatekeeper potentially, right? You imagine yourself as someone who's sort of a guardian of, of what is American, what isn't, who is American who and who isn't. And you extend that gaze to all immigrants. And, you know, when we say immigrants, we're talking to people from around the world. So it's, 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 there's no, I mean, this is a little bit like, this is another, this is a whole other tangent, but it's a little bit like the Asian American category, right? It's like, it's like grouping people together when there's this huge, huge diversity of, language and culture and ethnicities and all of that. And I think the same is true for, you know, this group we call immigrants, because there's no inherent reason why an immigrant from mainland China is going to feel connected to someone from Saudi Arabia, right? Like, that's just not an, you know, and and people come to this country with their own, they bring prejudices, you know, and I just think that it's, I actually find it quite easy to imagine why an immigrant would be resistant to immigrants from other parts of the world or immigrants who come after their families do. And I, I, I'm just struck that like, I, one of the sort of um, refrains that you hear among people who are skeptical of immigration um, that I thought about a lot as I was writing the book is the people who say like, my family came the right way. You know, my family came the legal way. We did it. We did it by the books. And these people who are new, I don't know what they're doing, but they're not following the rules. There's, there's often, I just think people very easily begin to not identify they, they they might be descended from immigrants they might even be proud that they're descended from immigrants but when they see new immigrants they see those people as very different from them one of the the things that my advisor one of my advisors in college used to say was that there was nothing more american than climbing up the ladder and pulling it up behind you um yeah you know that that is kind of the the sort of reaction that a lot of people have i think you're right um in in sort of policing you know kind of proper versus improper immigration um, or on other lines, you know, of religion or class, um, uh, you know, that that they sort of start to draw these boundaries. Um, yeah, and I also think to be to be a little bit empathetic to it as well. I mean, I think there's a great deal of pressure on people to assimilate and to fit in, right, and to show their allegiance. And I do think that that pressure comes from that comes often from white America. And people feel like they have to show and prove that they are American and they can fit in. And so it is natural to me that someone in their effort to do that would begin to differentiate themselves from other people. But I think that that is both, that's not necessarily how a person has to react, but I guess I just wanted to say too, that I think that's also born of pressures to assimilate from other people. 
Well, and that comes out really clearly in the book. Um, and I know we're sort of jumping around a little bit, um, uh, you know, when it comes to the book. So let me just say real quick, take a step back to sort of just narrate for, for listeners how the book is laid out, because that might help a little bit in terms of orienting themselves as to, you know, what topics we're talking about and when. Um, the book itself has nine chapters, as well as a prologue and an epilogue. And the nine chapters um, go from roughly the 1920s to the 1960s. Um, and, and you're really, again, marking this kind of trajectory from the Johnson-Reed Act of 1924 to the Immigration and Nationality Act or the Hart-Seller Act of 1965. The way I sort of understood the way that the chapters broke down, they're really kind of four phases that you're sort of tracking you're, you sort of start in the 1920s with the sort of nativism, the eugenics movement, and the anti-Semitism that lead to that that uh, Johnson-Reed Act, which in- implements the kind of national origins quotas um, that favor Western and Northern Europeans. And then you move into the chapters that look at the 1930s and 1940s, which kind of track the sort of tra- tragic costs and consequences of those kinds of quotas, especially when it comes to uh, refugees and displaced persons in the aftermath of World War II, but even prior to that, um, as as um, as Americans begin to realize what's happening to uh, Jews and Jews in Europe. Um, and then the third part of the book kind of tracks the 1950s, where you see the beginnings of reform, but the, they are mostly outmatched by national security concerns, um, the Red Scare, anti-communists um, uh, uh, movements. Um, headed by people like McCarran, uh, Pat McCarran of Nevada and, and Joe McCarthy. And then the final part of the book sort of looks at the achievement of the immigration reform that comes in the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. So I want to just sort of lay that out there, um, you know, for listeners who, who haven't had a chance to take a look at the book yet. Um, but I do want to return to the point that you were talking about in terms of um, the pressure to assimilate. And and this goes to um, the 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 1950s as a decade, and specifically to the role of Asian Americans and Japanese Americans in particular in your book, right? Because I think what the point that you made comes through really clearly with the life of Mike Masaoka um, and the kinds of choices that he makes as a leader in the Japanese American community as he thinks about how to fight for his community while also uh, doing so with the backdrop of these debates about national origins. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about how you understand the role of Asian Americans in this history um, and the sort of problematic choices and positions they've had to take, uh, given the pressures to assimilate, uh, you know, against uh, some of the other sort of uh, ethnicities that are also being excluded from immigrating to the United States. Yeah, I found this part to be incredibly surprising, and, and I still am kind of grappling with what it all means. I mean, I think I was just stunned because I think the central, I mean, if you really boil, if you really boil down 1924-1965, it's a fight over European immigration. And by that, I mean, it's the people involved are dealing with, they're motivated by a sense that Italian and Jewish Americans are not being treated equal to everyone else by the 1924 law. And that is what really needs to be corrected. And when they think about America as a country of immigrants, they think of you know, European immigrants. And this is in part why they can't imagine a future where there are all these Asian Americans, because in their mind, immigration is implicitly European immigration. But in sort of these margins, I kept finding hints of an Asian American presence. And the most, you know, the the clearest one and the most sort of morally complex to me um, is the story of Mike Masoka, who is just a fascinating, I mean, he's just a fascinating case study of assimilation. I mean, he's born in Utah, 
because his family, you know, they, they aren't allowed, his, his parents are Japanese immigrants. They're not allowed to own land in California. So they end up buying up land sight unseen in Utah and they show up and it's like a salt bed. So it's totally useless and they're, they're penniless. And he, and you know, his, his many, many siblings and his father dies when he's young. And so he comes up in this very white Mormon world in Utah and clearly totally assimilates. He's like a debate team champion. He, people are impressed by his English, even though he doesn't really speak any Japanese, but they see his face, they hear him speak English and they're so impressed. So he's someone um, who just comes up in a very white world and it just changes, changes how he, I think sees, it just shapes how he sees what it means to be American. So when the internment camp tragedy occurs, he's already involved in this very interesting group called the Japanese American citizens league, which is this kind of like self-anointed spokesperson for Japanese Americans. Like they're not really, um, they end up sort of speaking for Japanese Americans uh, as rep- as a representative really to the government during this whole internment tragedy. Uh, and people are, many people are kind of like, we never, you know, we never asked you to speak for us. And you're also sort of appeasing our leaders and saying, we're going to cooperate. Like, it's just very fraught what's going on. And Mike Masaoka is part of this group. But what struck me as so tragic is that he then convinces the Pentagon, um, you know, very much leads the way to to create this 442nd Regiment, the famous regiment of, of Nisei, who fight um, in the war and die and are, you know, truly heroic. What I didn't know as the, was the postscript of that story of this regiment, which is that Mike Masaoka, you know, comes back from the war. He's, he's lost his brother, Ben. And he immediately goes to the Hill as a lobbyist and says, you know, and there are no Asian American lobbyists going around. So when he shows up, people are shocked to see someone who's Asian at all, you know, walking in the halls of Congress. And he basically tries to leverage the sacrifices of all these Nisei soldiers into real change in the country's immigration laws. And I think this moment in Asian American history is just sort of not well, um, it was surprising to me, right? Because in the fifties in my book, the fifties are kind of like a dark, they're sort of wandering in the desert at this point for immigration reform. Like there's no hope of eliminating the quotas. It's incredibly hard. And yet in the middle of this, there's this kind of milestone moment where Mike Masaoka wins a naturalization rights for Asian immigrants, which, you know, when I learned that I thought, wow, that is actually a really big deal. I mean, it's a big deal for so many um, Asian families now it's also a big deal because without that, the 1965 Act and the whole idea of chain migration just is much harder to do. If you don't have citizens who then bring their siblings and their parents, like the whole thing doesn't quite work. But the story of how he gets that is so sad and so fraught because he is, in theory, supposed to be allied with Jewish groups, um, other immigrant groups who are all trying to get rid of these national origins quotas. And yet, you know, towards the last minute, it becomes clear that if he sort of abandons getting rid of the quotas, he could win for his people naturalization rights. And his own mother, who is, you know, Japan born and not a citizen, he feels like this is his last chance for her um, to win her the right to naturalize. And that is deeply important to him. And so he basically tosses overboard the Jewish groups, um, the black Caribbean groups that are concerned about, you know, really a uh, discriminatory part of, of the law they're debating that's going to block black immigrant, black immigration from the Caribbean. 
And he says, you know, I'm going it alone. We've got to win naturalization rights for Asians. And this is devastating because this debate, which is happening in 1952, you know, it's all about whether the country's immigration system is racist. And if you've got Japanese Americans saying, oh, actually, it's fine, just give us naturalization rights, it undercuts everyone else's argument against it. And so, you know, you could argue that if he stuck with the Jewish American activists and did not, you know, abandon everyone for naturalization rights, it's not obvious to me that the law would have still succeeded in eliminating the national origins quotas. Um, I think the political environment was very, very tough for that because of the Red Scare. But, you know, he does it and he does get something for it, but he also sets this, um, I don't know, it's an opportunity in that moment for for him to work across racial groups and to come together and he really doesn't do it. He gets something out of it, but I would argue that in the long run, it's it's really a very um, tragic missed opportunity. Yeah, Mike Masoka as a, as a tragic hero, you know, certainly um, illustrates the kind of model minority myth and the kind of dividing and conquering strategy that... I think many historians of, of race and immigration are, are familiar with. And I wonder what we can, ex- like, what lessons would you extract from that, given the resonance of that for contemporary debates around so many issues where Asian Americans are again implicated, right? Where there are things at stake for communities of color, affirmative action, you know, SFFA v. Harvard, um, which is, I believe, now on its way to being appealed, um, you know, after, after the district court ruled um, last fall. Um, you know, that's another case in which Asian Americans are called to stand with other communities of color in broader anti-racist efforts. What do you think we might take away from Mike Masaoka's uh, sort of history and activism, you know, effective as it was on behalf of his own community um, in terms of drawing broader alliances for progressive social change? I think this is a really hard question to answer. I mean, I think I I think about you know when Andrew Yang recently wrote that op-ed that you know a lot of people criticized, where he he talked about the 442nd Regiment. You know, he said we're now, of course, you know, I, this was in response to you know rising hate crimes against Asian Americans because of Trump calling the coronavirus the Chinese virus. And Andrew Yang said, you know, look at the 442nd Regiment. They volunteered to die for their country, and that's how you prove that you're American. <clears throat> and I just thought, you know, it's it's so complicated because you can do that, but I have to wonder, like, what did you know? What did Asian Americans get from that? Just you know, you can't imagine a more dramatic display of of patriotism and loyalty, right? I mean, and and in the history of America, right, going to war is like a very common way to prove that you're really American. This is Asian Americans are not the first to have done this, or the only ones to have done this. But it just struck me like everyone goes, they die in the war, they, you know, they become famous for this work. They even win some legislative um, fights on the hill. And yet here we are in 2020. And this idea that Asian Americans are still foreign, that Asian Americans still aren't truly American. I mean, it's like, where, where, what did we get from that sacrifice? You know, what did we actually win? And I just, it just strikes me that in this kind of moment, it, it for me reveals just how politically alone Asian Americans continue to be. And that this, this group, this identity is, I would argue a fairly tenuous community 
it's hard to keep together. There are, you know, two thirds of Asian Americans are foreign born. So there are, it's a very new community. It's very, it's growing very quickly. Everyone brings to it kind of a different sense of American history and Asian history. And it's just a very tough group to corral. And it can't, you know, no minority, I I guess what I learned from this is, you know, minority groups are particularly vulnerable when they try to do things on their own. You know, it's like you can't I, I just don't know how safe it is to, to sort of say we're going to protect ourselves. We don't need any other people. We don't have to watch out for other people. And no one needs to watch out for us. We're, we're, we're fine on our own. I just I just don't know that that works. I, I look at sort of, you know, Jewish history. Right. It's like you can um, you know, one one thinker I had in my mind actually the whole time for my book, although she doesn't appear anywhere in the footnotes or acknowledgments um, is Hannah Rent, and thinking about, you know, her her work on being a stateless person and this notion of jewish history in europe of of feel of german jews in particular i'm thinking of like you are you couldn't be more assimilated you think that you're in the elite you're accepted and then one day a government snaps its fingers and your papers are just totally nullified and you're totally stateless and this notion that like as a minority when that moment happens, you're, you're going to need friends who aren't you, right? Who aren't part of your minority group to survive because you alone, if you are nullified in that way, nullified is extreme, but you know, in some way nullified, you yourself can't really fight back alone. I think that's, and I think in this moment of anti-Asian xenophobia, I'm really feeling that truth very deeply, right? It's like, this is happening and you look up and you look around and you're like, and you literally need bystanders, right? Like if I'm yelled at at the grocery store, I actually need bystanders to step up and say something. And, and, you know, I actually edited a story at the times about these um, hate crime attacks and the, and the darkest moment to me in these stories was not, not only that they were happening, all the people were being spat on in public, that people were being yelled at at the grocery store, but that in a bunch of the cases we, we looked at, when this happened, there was total silence around the victim. No one stepped forward. Everyone just sort of looked away, embarrassed, and they didn't want to do anything. And that for me, I mean, I know we're sort of far afield from Mike Masaoka, but for me, like what's happening right now just sort of reinforces that the Mike Masaoka approach of going it alone ends with you at the grocery store being yelled at and no one coming to your aid. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And 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 the respectability politics, right? Yelling that you are American or yelling that you have, you know, done certain things for for the the United States, right? Doesn't doesn't really work as an argument in that case. No one cares um in in that case. Um I it's funny you brought up the Andrew Yang op-ed because as I was reading, you know, that chapter on um where Mike Masoka uh, stood up, I wrote in the margins, a modern day Andrew Yang or, a, or, a, you know, a Yang, Andrew Yang for the 1950s, um, you know, which is not yeah. to deny that he has, you know, inspired obviously certain people and, and, you know, uh, but, but, but that he's, that, that, that stance does have uh, certain kinds of um, limits uh, in terms of its political efficacy. And I also, I mean, I think as a kind of an interesting, um, I mean, just sort of an interesting thought experiment. I mean, it strikes me, I feel like Asian Americans have been called sort of like the new Jews. You know, I don't know if you've come mm-hmm. across that before. I, 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 I did not, when I started this book, think I would spend quite, a, quite as much time thinking about Jewish American history, but I really relished it because it became this like very interesting way of thinking about assimilation and immigration and difference and like how people fit in, what they leave behind when they try to fit in too. Um, 
And I just think there's something to this, right? It's like, what does, so assimilation for Jews and Italian Americans, you know, first of all, can you even ask the question, does, certainly the, certainly World War II, I'd argue, is like a very powerful force of assimilation for these people, you know, these children of immigrants. And then you have to ask yourself, I think, too, I don't try to answer this, but to what extent does the 1924 law affect that process of assimilation, right? If you suddenly sort of close down the gates and like everyone who's in is it, and you're saying, and you're affirming so strongly, we want white Anglo-Saxons, what does that mean for the people who just came in under the wire, right? Like, what does that mean for their process of assimilation? And then now for Asian Americans, I just can't help but think like, is that like, are, could, could we be Jews if we aren't European, right? Is there some, is there some sort of racial bias element that is so deep that there is, you know, we're not going to become white, right? Like there's how far, how far can you go to be white if you, if you aren't European, right? I guess it's my question. And I just think with this Mike Wasoka thing, like, I just think for Asian Americans, this idea that you'll suddenly just sort of become white, right? The way that I'd argue Jewish Americans became much whiter, I just, that doesn't seem to happen. And so just going down that road over and over to me just seems like just sort of short-sighted. And there just just sort of needs, I think, to be a different conception of what assimilation looks like if you're Asian American. Right. And I mean, as as somebody who works, you know, in Asian American studies and, you know, comes out of this kind of critical race and ethnic studies background, I think, you know, the... um, you know, my instinct is is to champion kind of an anti-white supremacist, um, you know, anti-racist kind of coalition building uh, that, you know, and I think there's there's been, you know, Eric Goldstein's work on, um, you know, how, how Jews became white, um, that a lot of that had to do with, uh, or at least for, for white ethnic Europeans or Euro-Americans being able to draw that distinction, um, you know, between themselves um, and, and African-Americans uh, in this country. Um, and, and that's not really a possibility for, for Asian Americans. Um, you know, so, so, uh, there has to be a different path as you were saying. Yeah. And I think what's actually really both terrifying and exciting to me is that I think through this book, I didn't, I didn't quite understand just how new we are, you know, like I, there have obviously been Asian Americans in this country for a very long time now, um, there's a very long history of anti-Asian racism and of you know migrant labor, and that's all very true. But but in these numbers, right, as as this large a proportion of the American population, we are in we are in new territory. And I feel like what I what I learned from this book that I'm trying to take with me in this moment of a lot of anti-Asian xenophobia is that we aren't really fully politically established here. Um, because we're also very new. Like, of course, we're not fully established here. We're just, our story, again, I don't mean to, I don't mean to dismiss like Asian Americans that came before us, but like this current story, right? The post-1965 story, people like me, my parents, a lot of my friends, it's just beginning. And that idea of what it means to be Asian American, like we are making it up right now. We are the ones kind of establishing it and building upon what has come before but, but very much stepping into a completely new paradigm of American race. And I just think that that is actually, I think once I figured, once I understood that no one was going to sort of, there, that there wasn't a, an answer that was already done that was going to be handed to me as an Asian American. And that in fact, like, 
I and others will have to be part of the people sort of naming it and shaping it. It really changed how I thought about, um, you know, my family's place in this country. I think, I think just knowing that there was this law that was very recent that allowed us to be here, I, it, a lot of things clicked for me. I was like, oh, this is why a lot of this feels confusing. It's, it's all just happened now, right? Like when my parents came to Virginia in the 70s and 80s, there weren't Asian Americans here, you know, like it was just a completely different world. Um, and that work of making sense of it and, and building a life here, that's, for my family at least, that's, that's all happened in just in the last few decades. And I think the other question that, that comes out of that is the question of how do you, once you sort of have an understanding of that question and potentially some of the, the answers, right, how do you sell it to people who don't look like you? And this is, you know, I'm, I'm jumping a little ahead to, to the epilogue because I, I thought it tied back really nicely to some of the debates that led up to immigration reform in the 1960s. And in the epilogue, you write that the current generation of immigrants and children of immigrants must articulate a new vision for the current era, one that embraces rather than elides how far America has drifted from its European roots, right? So, so you know, to the extent that demographers have said the United States will become a non-white majority country by, what, 2030, 2040, 2050, certainly, right? And some states are already well on their way, like California. How do you sell that vision, that inclusive, egalitarian vision, to the broader public as something that is desirable. And I think that's one of the things that I found so compelling about the book is sort of tracking the struggles that liberals have in staking that position effectively, especially when you're going up against arguments like the economy, national security, uh, you know, all the kind of like boogeymans that, that conservatives love to trot out. And so part of, I think, you know, the, the challenge that you illuminate, you know, as far back as the 1950s, when liberals are sort of casting about for some kind of corrective to national origins quotas, and they're, they're doing it ineffectively because they don't know how to, to sell that, that value proposition of an inclusive and egalitarian United States. Maybe that's kind of the, you know, late motif of American history, right? Is, is we, we have to figure out how to sell that. For, for those of us who are invested in, uh, you know, social change and social justice, we have to figure out how to sell that. But that to me is is really the, the core of, of what you're saying is, you know, once we realize that that about our own community, how do we bring others on board? Um, you know, and, and that's a challenge that has gone back, you know, half a century into the uh, uh, into the 1950s. People were struggling with that even back then. Yeah, I think I think one thing that I, I thought was a total turning point in the political argument for the law and that really for me, I think is, is kind of this intellectual groundwork that makes breaks the whole thing open is the work of Oscar Hanlon, the historian on immigration, who really kind of articulates this, this new mythology around a nation of immigrants that JFK picks up on too. It's like this new nationalism, right? And I think I came across one historian's take on it, which was that prior to a nation of immigrants, the country had really thought of itself, and I, I don't know if, you know, as an actual story for you, for you, if this strikes you as correct, but be, before that, the sort of central mythology was of the, the American West, that America was a nation of the West, and that this new idea of a nation of immigrants sort of comes in and takes flight and really catches on um, with all these children and grandchildren of immigrants, all these Jews and Italian Americans and Irish Catholics and all these people. Um, who I guess are sort of the New Deal coalition too, but they they really they really really embrace this idea, and I think there's something to me kind of really rich and interesting about a nationalism built on immigrants 
right? Like you think of nationalism, you think of nativism, anti-immigrants. And this is actually nationalism that, that celebrates immigrants. And I think that vision is still quite powerful. I mean, you see a lot of it in the resistance to Trump and the anger against him and his immigration policies. I think for me where it falls short is that it sort of begins to treat um, immigrants almost as mascots, you know, like we love immigrants. I mean, I haven't seen Hamilton, but I, I think Hamilton maybe has a little, like from what I've heard, like a little bit of this, like we love immigrants. Immigrants are great, but it doesn't really get beyond that. Right. Because unless you want open borders, you're going to have to explain which immigrants you want here and which ones you're going to say no to. And I think that's where like the work hasn't been done, right? It's like, there is this sort of slogan of we're a nation of immigrants. We love immigrants. But then when we get down to, okay, why are we mistreating so many undocumented people? <laughs> like who is working at the restaurant that you keep eating at? Like who is doing your, you know, as we're seeing now with the coronavirus, who's at the meatpacking plant, right? Like they're, the, we love immigrants, but yet immigrants are treated like this. I just think there has to be sort of more work done on explaining what it means to be a nation of immigrants right now, given that the last time we did this, it was the 50s and the immigrants were all European. But what does it mean to be a nation of immigrants when you have this many people from Asia, the Middle East, Africa, Latin America? Like, what does that nation of immigrants look like? And I haven't really seen anyone really, I think, put forward a really full vision for that. And I think that that might be part of the issue. I think the, the other thing, you know, and, and this is much more prosaic is, is um, you know, that, that uh, unfortunately, some of the older ideas just need to die. Um, you know, and, and that, that was one of the things that actually also occurred to me as I was reading the book, especially as you moved into the 1950s and 1960s, right, that a lot of these legislative agendas kind of move forward when the roadblocks, the people who, who are holding them up, people like Pat McCarran, uh, Eastland, um, you know, they keel over. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's a weird way in which death plays a part in, in this book. Yes. Um, and, and JFK, right? <laughs> JFK is kind of the biggest. Oh, if, he, if he is not assassinated, there's, there is no 1965 Immigration Nationality Act. I am and, and that's why it's so amazing, right? That it, in some ways it's like, you know, the, the conservatives dying, uh, allows some of this agenda to move forward, but also, you know, a, a, a liberal champion like JFK dying as a martyr, you know, sort of helps LBJ to push that forward. There's there's a really amazing way that that kind of death runs as a as a theme to the <laughs> 1950s and 60s. Well, I, I also think that that's how hard immigration reform is. Like, you have to have just the right people die. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but not really. Like, I think the story is one where just the right people die at just the right moments for everything to come together for 1965. But if not for that, there is no law because it is so, I mean, I, I think as my book shows, it is so hard to change the national origins quotas. It's like, there's no way to do it unless the stars perfectly align, the deaths align. Someone's a president is dramatically assassinated. Then you can have this law. And that, that also just tells me just how hard it is um, to politically win I mean, I think to your point earlier, like this sort of vision of like egalitarian immigration equality is just not um, an easy pitch to make and never has been. Yeah. And even, you know, even when it does happen in 1965, right, that there are sort of compromises still, you know, as you as you show in that last chapter, you know, I, I don't think I realize how close, right, that the House version actually still had uh, the, the version that the House passed under Manny Seller had no 
cap on Western Hemisphere immigration. Right. Right. And it's not until right. you get the reconciliation uh, that to win the Senate over, um, they put that in. It was so close. Right. And that and that's such a that would have, as as we know from the work of Nainai, right, that 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 would have solved a lot of the debates uh, that we now have on yes. undocumented uh, immigrants. I, I think for me, just every I mean, what I think I think it's inevitable when you study history, when you read history, you learn how contingent everything is. But I have to say that doing this book, I was truly stunned at how so many things were contingent. I mean, it was just like one thing after another. And you're right. Like, if not for that, um, I mean, just imagine how different our world would look on immigration right now. The U.S.-Mexico border, we would we would just conceive of it completely differently. Right. I'm glad you mentioned contingency because when I when I teach historical methods to my students, uh, you know that's one of the five kind of C's we call it the five C's. But contingency, I think, is is one of the things that you do get you know take away from from this book, especially as you narrate the kind of dramatic debates and you know buttonholing that happens uh, you know in in the halls of Congress and and in offices in the White House. Um, if we if we take a step back from the book, um, what do you hope historians take away from it? Right, we're we're talking, you know, sort of on on two sides of the same coin. We're both kind of trained as as storytellers. You as a journalist, you know, I'm a historian. Um, but you know, one of the things that you and I talked about earlier before we began this conversation was that a lot of the the themes and issues that you address in the book keep coming up again and again. So there's a way in which historians are in some ways, failing to communicate the lessons of history to policymakers and to the public, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, the the ways in which the economy and national security are, you know, uh, not useful for uh, uh, for for limiting immigration, um, you know, how, what can historians do differently? What what should scholars think about as they consider communicating their research and their history to a broader public? I mean, I think for me, like I, I wanted to write something, you know, I, I grappled a lot with sort of what is known, what has been done by historians already and what has not been done. And I've, I felt like, I mean, May and I's work, um, we've only referenced in passing here, but just, I mean, totally foundational. This book would not exist without her work. Um, what struck me reading sort of across a lot of the, the history work was that I don't know. I just feel like this nineteen it's 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 this it's the it's the uh, era of my book, right? It's like it's it's I think thinking about the Cold War period too in a different way. Um, and I just think the gap between sort of popular understanding of different eras of history and what historians actually know just could not be bigger. I mean, I, it struck me certainly for the Cold War section I was writing. Um, I was shocked at how powerful McCarthyism was you know I think we think of it as like a Hollywood thing like I'm, I'm thinking just very like you know very uh mass popular understandings of history but like I think we think of McCarthyism as just sort of you know people ratted out uh directors in Hollywood and that's it I, I don't think I had quite seen or understood just how deeply embedded it was in every every aspect of American politics um, the 1920s, I think in his, in like high school, I felt like I was taught that it was like this great time of the Charleston and the flapper dresses and like everyone, the jazz era and none of the like total darkness going on. Um, I guess I, I think as somebody who, you know, I, I work in like the popular press, I try to, I try to edit stories that people will read. I do think using the tools of narrative 
it's just really important to communicate ideas. I mean, I, I felt like when I was writing this book, I mean, what could be drier than immigration legislative history? And not just that, my book is about failed legislative history. You know, like most of the book is just one legislative failure after another. Um, and just the challenge of trying to make that interesting was 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 like the central writing challenge. But I just think historians should never underestimate the power of narrative tension, bringing out that contingency. For me, my favorite history books have you on sitting on like pins and needles, wanting to know in suspense what's going to happen next, even when you know exactly what's going to happen next. They just they just really are great at creating that narrative tension. And then I think characters, like finding people through which to tell a story just makes it so much more powerful for people. And I think bridges the gap. I mean, I was just listening to a great interview with Lawrence Wright, um, the New Yorker writer who has a new novel out. And he had this great, um, great writing tip that I'm never, I'm going to use over and over again um, when I talk to writers that I edit too, which was use, use characters like they're donkeys. Donkeys carry dull information (laughs) And you're much, if you can find a character, a person who's compelling and charismatic to be the donkey, to carry that dry information, it just becomes so much more um, readable. It's engaging. People will follow you to the ends of the earth through the driest material if you can find that great donkey to carry the information. And I felt like that's one thing that I feel like, you know, historians that's that's how I think you bridge the gap between what historians know in their minds and what is in the popular imagination. It's through really compelling stories that end up being in books, that end up being in movies, on TV shows. Like that's how people get information. And I just think if historians are thinking about how do I make my my work more widely read or my, what I know more widely read, even if you do your academic work, but you write op-eds on the side to spread the information, like think about writing, you know, this is unsolicited advice, but like if you write through characters, if you write with narrative tension, those things just go such a long way to communicating really important ideas. Well, I think that's a great note for us to start wrapping up on because, you know, there are there are a lot of great donkeys, uh, and I don't mean literally Democrats, yes. but there are a lot of great donkeys <laughs> in that sense too, um, in One Mighty and Irresistible Tide. And, and there's so much that we didn't get to. I mean, there, there's so many parts of the book that I just dog-eared because, you know, some of the the, the sort of connections that you make you know, like Adolf Hitler writing uh, in Mein Kampf um, in admiration of the 1924 national origins quotas as a model for Germany, right? That's just, it's mind blowing. And again, so, uh, so, so resonant with what's happening today. Um, and I, I hope that readers will have a chance to dive into some of the uh, the characters and the debates and the the maneuvering that that you cover uh, in this book. You know, I, I know that it's already received a star review um, from Kirkus Reviews and, and, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there will be lots more that will be said about the book. Um, before we let you go, um, I'm sure folks who are listening might be interested in what you um, are listening to, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody's watching Netflix uh, or, or picking up a book. What is inspiring you or giving you joy in this moment uh, in terms of uh, uh, something that you're reading or that you're watching? Um, well, this is sort of a goofy answer, but I've been watching old episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is kind of a weird choice right now um, and not a serious one. But I think there's something about, um, you know, I I was saying to you earlier, too, there's something about darkness for me right now that is actually strangely comforting. Um, Things that feel like cotton candy aren't working for me. So a show like Curb, which is about deeply petty people, um, 
is really, really comforting. And I feel like I, I, when I finished the book, I was like, I can't read history again for a long time, but I, I am like really eager to dig into a really meaty history book um, right now. I haven't chosen one yet, but I think I want to pick one from like a really dark time. I might read, there's a book um, that I'm very interested in given the anti-Asian backlash right now called Black Death of the Golden Gate, which came out last year. And it's a history of the fight against the bubonic plague in the early 1900s in San Francisco and a lot of racism against Chinese Americans in the Chinatown there um, during that fight. So I might, I might pick that up because that combines uh, both racism, history and, and epidemiology. So I think that might be the ticket for me. Well, I hope you enjoy that book. I the, the one thing I, that came to mind as I read your book um, is, is uh, I was also watching um, the plot against America uh, on HBO at the same time. And, uh, it yes. was, it was almost too much. I was like, I need to, I need to, you know, I need to do one of these at a time. Otherwise, um, you know. The, yeah, the, I've had trouble. I do want to watch that, but I think it it would be very hard for me to watch right now. I, but I do, I'm very eager to watch that at some, at some point. Well, it was a great conversation. It was great to talk to you about the book. Thank you for, for um, writing such a riveting narrative um, of this piece of these couple pieces of legislation and the, and the 40 year really epic struggle, as, as it says in the title, um, over them. Um, and thank you again for, for joining us. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Jia Lin Yang, author of One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, The Epic Struggle Over American Immigration, 1924 to 1965, published in 2020 by W.W. Norton. My name is Ian Shin, and this is New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.